a word of caution. This episode contains depictions of murder that may be disturbing to listeners. Discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. Also, an important note. I'll be discussing the five-part series, The Confession Killer, that's currently streaming on Netflix. If you haven't already watched it, I would recommend checking it out before listening to this episode, as it contains spoilers. A murder suspect bonds with his jailers and makes a special connection with a female jailhouse minister. He's given agency to confess to more than 300 murders, but becomes a most unreliable narrator. A seasoned journalist who's written a book about notorious serial killer Ted Bundy conducts hours and hours of interviews with the suspect and begins to question everything about what he is saying. A district attorney goes against a respected law enforcement agency and finds his life and career in jeopardy. This sounds like a fictional film, right? But no. Think more along the lines of Aaron Brockovich or Dark Waters. The storylines I mentioned above can be found in the Netflix documentary, The Confession Killer, which profiles professed serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. And it has more twists and turns than you can imagine, including ties to the Carolinas. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 46 a review of Netflix's documentary, The Confession Killer. I first came across the name Henry Lee Lucas a few years ago when I was researching a few of the early episodes for this podcast. Some old newspaper articles mentioned that he was being questioned for a slew of unsolved cases in the Carolinas involving missing and murdered people. I finally got around to watching The Confession Killer, which features the story of how Lucas duped an entire team of investigators, in both Texas and scores of other U.S. states. I was actually living in the part of Texas where Henry spent a great deal of time in the Georgetown jail while this took place. I've also written about some of these North and South Carolina crimes he allegedly confessed to. Here's a little backstory on Henry Lee Lucas, which is mostly what the first episode of The Confession Killer covers. He was born to an impoverished family in 1936 in Blacksburg, Virginia. His father was a double amputee, and his mother worked as a prostitute to help support their family. Both parents are reported to have been violent alcoholics. When he was in fifth grade, his brother stabbed Lucas in the eye, supposedly while they were playing, resulting in Lucas losing that eye and getting a glass one put in. In 1960, when he was 28, he was convicted of murdering his mother and sent to prison in Michigan. His father had died while Lucas was a teenager. Paroled in 1970, he was sent back to prison after the attempted abduction of a 15-year-old girl. He was released again in 1975 and was married for a brief time before the woman accused Lucas of molesting her two daughters. A year later, he met a man named Otis Toole from Florida, 
and the two formed an unusual bond as they traveled together, often working odd jobs to support themselves. It was through Otis that Lucas met his niece, 15-year-old Frida Lorraine Powell, also known as Becky. Lucas and Becky ended up in Texas. He later claimed Becky had been his common-law wife, but he admitted that on August 24, 1982, he stabbed her with a butcher knife after they got into an argument. After he disposed of her body, he then murdered 82-year-old Kate Rich, a woman with whom he and Becky had been staying with in Denton, Texas. When Kate Rich went missing, a family member called the police and said they were worried and suspected a man named Henry Lee Lucas that had been living with her might be involved. Police realized 15-year-old Becky Powell was also missing. Investigators picked Lucas up for questioning. He mentioned he had a warrant out on him in Michigan for violating his probation. They put him in jail for that, and he ended up confessing to the murders of Kate Rich and Becky Powell. He took the officers to the gruesome remains of both Kate and Becky. He had dismembered Becky and attempted to burn the body of Kate. But at the arraignment for Kate's murder, Lucas said to the presiding judge, well, what are we going to do about these other 100 people I killed? At that point, Lucas started claiming he had victims all across the country. Law enforcement officers in other states began calling Texas to inquire about other victims. Media outlets flocked to Georgetown. It was a circus that would not leave town, said retired Texas Ranger Phil Ryan, who was interviewed in The Confession Killer. The Texas Rangers, which is a criminal investigative branch of the Texas Department of Public Safety, formed a special task force to help coordinate meetings between Henry Lee Lucas and detectives from more than 40 other states. One of the Texas Rangers, Bob Prince, said in the documentary that more than 1,000 officers visited Lucas in Texas to inquire about unsolved murders in their states. In episode 20 of Missing in the Carolinas, I discussed the case of South Carolina teenager Eve DeBrule, who went missing from a small town near Rock Hill in 1977 while mowing her family's front yard. Here is some of what I shared in that episode. Authorities organized a search in 1984 because of a tip they had received from notorious serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. At the time, Lucas was incarcerated in Georgetown, Texas, after confessing to the murders of two women there. Because Lucas had spent so many years as a drifter, often traveling with his companion, Otis Toole, between the years of 1976 and 1981, investigators wondered if he could be responsible for some of their cold cases. Lucas told the York County Sheriff's Department Detective Birch Grant that he had picked up a young woman, matching Eve's description, around the time she disappeared, murdered her, then left her body in the Lansford Canal State Park, pointing out the area on a map investigators showed him. But after searching for two weeks, the search for Eva's remains turned up nothing. An article that ran in the Charlotte Observer in August of 1984 bore the headline, Odyssey of Murder, at least 10 crimes in Carolinas bear hallmark of a killer named Henry Lee Lucas. A map of North and South Carolina ran with the article and mentioned the following cases along with Eva's. The unidentified murdered couple known as Jacques and Jane Doe, who were found shot to death in Sumter County in August of 1976. We profiled that case in episode 27, Unidentified People in the Carolinas. That couple was identified in 2021 as James Freund and Pamela Buckley. 
their murder remains unsolved. Harriet Simmons, who went missing after traveling on I-40 in April 1979, and her car was found in Iredell County. Her remains were located a year later in Buncombe County. We featured the resolution to her case on episode 26, Missing Moms in North Carolina. A man named Terry Hyatt eventually confessed to her murder in 1999. In October of 1978, Lucas said he murdered 54-year-old Della Jernigan, who was shot about 20 miles outside of Four Oaks. In September of 1979, he claimed he had killed a woman about 20 miles southwest of Raleigh. In May or June of 1981, Lucas said he had killed an 8- or 9-year-old little girl near Four Oaks off Interstate 95. He was suspected of the July 7, 1981 murder of 21-year-old Lynn Pittman, who was found in the Savannah River in Hardyville, South Carolina. On October 29, 1981, authorities found the remains of an unidentified female in Iola, Texas. Lucas claimed he had abducted her from Durham, North Carolina, before murdering her in Texas. In April 1980, Lucas said he dumped the body of a hitchhiker he had picked up in Winston-Salem, near Four Oaks. Once you watch the entire documentary, you'll realize that there is little chance Henry Lee Lucas had anything to do with the above-mentioned crimes in the Carolinas. The confession killer is so surreal and sensational, it almost feels like you're watching a film. A fictional film. The documentary has everything you can imagine. Brutal crimes, an unusual friendship between a female jailhouse minister and a prisoner, a group of Texas law enforcement officers who will do anything to appease a prisoner so he'll keep confessing and closing cases all over the country, an astute journalist who started realizing the pieces didn't all fit together, and a district attorney who dared to question the Texas Department of Public Safety. I was riveted and on the edge of my seat by the third episode. It all starts to unravel when journalist Hugh Ainsworth began to question the more than 300 people Henry claimed to have murdered. Before we continue, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. By day, I work as a journalist, but I also enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests. If you like writing creative nonfiction, I encourage you to check out the Creative Nonfiction Essay Contest over at WOW Women on Writing. The mission of this contest is to inspire creative nonfiction and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally, all ages are welcome to enter, and entries must be in English. Your story must be true, but the way you tell it is your chance to get creative. WOW is open to all styles of essay, from personal essay to lyric essay to hybrid essay and beyond. The deadline for the latest creative nonfiction contest is October 31st. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place wins $500. WOW allows a maximum of 300 entries. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. And now, let's get back to the show. Hugh Ainsworth has said, Lucas said, I only got three, really, but they're going wild every time I tell them about some more. I'm going to show them. They think I'm stupid. But before all this is over, everyone will know who's really stupid, and we'll see who the real criminals are. Ainsworth and another reporter, Jim Henderson, began to take scraps of information Lucas gave them 
and began a side investigation into the timeline of murders Lucas had confessed to. They tracked down work records, traffic tickets, insurance forms, and interviews with landlords and employers, and other written evidence. The two reporters shared this information with the Washington Post, which published an article in April of 1985. This was just after Ainsworth and Henderson had published their own explosive piece in the Dallas Times-Herald on April 14, 1985. A syndicated article that ran on November 11, 1983, featured an interview with Lucas's attorney at the time, Tom Whitlock. He said he didn't believe Lucas was legally insane. He explained that in talking to Lucas one-on-one, he appeared a nice, congenial man who didn't even utter a curse word. He said he thought Lucas had always wanted friends, but never learned the proper model on having and keeping friends throughout his lifetime. This led to him wanting to please the members of law enforcement who questioned him about unsolved murders. Back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, investigators did not have the means to test DNA. From what I can tell, there isn't much in the way of physical evidence that would have ever linked Lucas to any of the crimes outside of the three that are confirmed. Yet Lucas was convicted of 11 of the murders he confessed to, but it was the conviction in a 1979 murder of an unidentified young woman called Orange Socks that sent him to death row. Side note, this victim was finally identified in 2019 as Deborah Jackson. Lucas had no incentive to stop with his tall tales, though. As long as he kept confessing, the Texas Rangers flew him all over the country to visit other crime scenes and discuss how he murdered the victims. Spoiler. Lucas says in one of the interviews that police showed him crime scene photos before he visited the scenes so he would already know the details. While in Georgetown, he slept in a cell with a television set, was provided all the cartons of cigarettes he wanted, and got daily strawberry milkshakes as a treat. Citing a lack of evidence connecting Lucas to the murder, apart from his confession, which he later recanted, then-Governor George W. Bush commuted his death sentence in 1998, marking the first and only time Bush did so as governor. Lucas spent the rest of his life in prison and died in 2001 of a heart attack. The Texas Department of Public Safety maintains their belief they conducted themselves in a professional manner while coordinating and operating the task force. The documentary presents their side with interviews. Robert Kenner, who produced the documentary Food, Inc., and Australian filmmaker Taki Oldham, put together the confession killer using hours and hours of archived footage of Lucas, including recordings of his jailhouse confessions. What attracted Oldham to the project was his realization that so many of these cases that were attributed to Lucas remain closed, and that's an injustice to the victims and their families. Kenner said, If we were to take a conservative estimate, 70 to 100 cases are still crediting Lucas for the crime, whether formally or informally. Probably 160 or 170 were never reinvestigated, which is an incredible number. In 2021, A case long linked to Henry Lee Lucas, the 1983 murder of Laura Purchase, was solved through DNA testing. Authorities arrested 75-year-old Kansas City resident Thomas Elvin Darnell of the murder. There are other cases that have been solved, profiled in the final episode of The Confession Killer. My question is, how many more of the cases attributed to Henry Lee Lucas 
could be solved with a new set of eyes and testing of evidence. This brings us to the conclusion of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have there at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.